Welcome back, everybody, to the Roycast, the world's first succession podcast. My name is Brendan. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Gabby. Hello, everyone. And joining us today to discuss the finale, episode 10, season 2, This Is Not For Tears, is our friend Katie Stebbins. Hello, Katie. Hey, thanks for having me. Katie, I was really excited to get you on this episode because in addition to you being um, one of my favorite people to uh, read about film online, I know you as a super fan of the show Survivor. And yes, this is like, this, this is, is the, the Survivor most Survivor episode. episode. <laughs> That's literally all in my notes is just like, this is Survivor. Oh my God, I was so excited. <laughs> yes. Head on a spike. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is um, this sort of, you know, watching Succession, you get, I would kind of ping back to, like, Survivor from time to time and just thinking about the um, sort of commonalities between watching people try to assess each other without people knowing that they're assessing them, trying to manipulate other people, trying to kind of, like, throw other people under the bus and kind of maneuver situations to go a certain way and, um, and all of that happening through conversation. And uh, so that's something that I, I really love about both of those shows. And then this episode is kind of like the most perfect blend of, of those elements. Yeah, this episode has like a great almost tribal council scene is, that is kind of uh, the centerpiece. Yeah, absolutely. It's like Logan has immunity, but someone's getting uh, someone's getting the toss. <laughs> <laughs> I actually know very little about Survivor. I don't think I've seen it since I was a teenager. Um, <laughs> So I'm going to rely on... Is it still going? Oh, oh, it is still going. And it is great. Yeah. (laughs) Some longevity there. Oh, yeah. It's like season 38 or something. Wow. It's It's nuts. Here's to 36 more seasons. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, But Katie, when did you come to Succession? I think you started this year, did you not? I did. I did. It um, had been... I think I I started right when season two premiered. I kind of caught up over a couple of weeks um and you know it had been something i'd sort of seen about knew i was interested in but i'm very like picky with tv i feel like i try stuff out and then i kind of either don't really enjoy it or i kind of enjoy it and then fall off the wagon i kind of just like "Eh, eh, i'm moving on um but succession was one that i had wanted to try out and that i felt that i would really like and then I did, and then it was, like, all over from there, and I just became completely obsessed with it. And, um, yeah, so I've been following very very uh, So did very you binge-watch the first season? I did not. I don't really like to binge-watch things, but I, it, I was doing, like, it took me about two weeks to do season one. There were some nights where I just didn't have time to watch any, yeah. and some nights where I was watching, like, maybe two, but I would never watch more than two in a row, I don't think. Uh, it was hard, but I, I, I did kind of want it. I wanted to catch up, but I also wanted to sort of enjoy it. Um, yeah, and, just... and I think it's better that way. I think Succession I is... I do, too. I, yeah, I don't <laughs> it's think a week-to-week it's week type show, it's not, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not like a... And I find that with, like, a lot of, uh, you know, shows that are built for week-to-week, week, that, that binging them is kind of... Uh, for, for me, at least. I know some people get a lot out of it, but for me, it sort of has diminishing returns. Well, there yeah. was a there was a quote that was going around from Netflix's uh, Ted Sarandos right. this week, where he was oh talking about how you know I uh, you know I love Succession on HBO, <laughs> but I wish it was on our platform because you know I get impatient waiting uh, each week for the next episode, and I was like, wow, poor <laughs> dude, <laughs> giant child. I know. <laughs> oh 
god yeah yeah, yeah succession is a slow burn like you need to it marinate is. on it yeah. um the other thing that succession does that doesn't lend itself to those netflix uh models is it actually has episodes that are discreetly <laughs> satisfying you don't True. have to watch nine hours of it in a row to get the resolution of a single <laughs> plot point stretched yeah, it, over your entire afternoon yeah every episode has like purpose is somewhat self-contained but furthers all of the things that are going on it's like oh this is like what tv like is kind of at least for me supposed to be instead of a lot of times I'm watching it and being like, why did this need to be a season? Uh, or why did right. this need to exist? Period. <laughs> um, and uh, this is just sort of like everything is just so beautifully calibrated. Um, it's really nice to see. Yeah, I was like five feet from Ted Sarandos when I was at the New York Film Festival last month. And <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was like, huh, okay, that's that's the guy. That's him. <laughs> Thanks for all the Marvel shows. Whatever. Yeah, and I think the idea of succession being, you know, well calibrated and titrated and self-contained speaks to some of the fan theory stuff that we'll talk about towards the end of the episode. Um, but it's very, very pertinent to that because there's a sort of impulse to have these, you know, high twist and turns and, and um, you know, succession is doing something else. And, um, you know, I think some people may be frustrated by that, but... Well, it reminds me of another show that had a very high degree of kind of um, uh, visual and formal control of its film language, um, Breaking Bad, um, mm -hmm. which is an incredibly... Um, uh, uh, sort of like a well-made show on a visual level and also prompted a bunch of people to, you know, furiously generate theories about what was going to happen next. And I was like, it's all right there. The show tells you. Right. Um, so yeah. It's pretty clear. <laughs> but we, we will dive into that. We have plenty to say about that. But we want to um, get started, I guess, with the setting of this episode, which uh, <clears throat> they're in Croatia. And for most of the season, the Roys have been outside of New York City I think the only episodes that took place solely in the city were Walter and um, Safe Room. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, yeah, the Roys have been in lots of other countries and cities this um, this season. And they're usually in, in beautiful places, but in very dreary climates. Um, <laughs> we talk about how the Roys are always kind of dressed for like 55 degree weather. <laughs> so this was a little bit of a contrast seeing all of them in, in summer attire and it was you know very um you know stunning clothes and 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 the yacht obviously is kind of <laughs> larger than life and a little bit tacky also maybe that was just Marsha's refit but um you know there's all this abundant sunshine and um you know gorgeous water and you know the entire episode is still coursing with this tension the suspense um and then I think the water definitely plays a role in that um you know everyone who watches Succession knows that it has an ongoing symbolic relationship with water um water is where NRPIs the the term coined by the Roys or you know their broader world to, to define people who don't matter and who aren't real. Um, it's where those people die at the hands of this family. Um, it's where we got to see Logan's first real vulnerabilities in season one's Austerlitz, um, when he is swimming in the pool and Marsha is the only person there with him and, and we see the scars on his back. And water obviously has been used 
widely throughout history as a symbol of, you know, uncertainty, doom. There's a reason so many people say their greatest fear is like deep blue ocean. You know, the ocean is brutal. It's unforgiving. Um, it can also be a sim- symbol of redemption, which we see sort of in that incredible overhead crucifix-like shot of Ken on his back in the yacht's pool. You know, that kind of calls to mind the the first episode of this season, the first scene, really, when he um, is in that sort of spa pool in Iceland. He's floating, and, and he's sort of been clearly primed throughout the season to be this sacrificial lamb, but... Yeah, and there's also just kind of like the practical element of tension of being just like trapped at sea with nowhere to go, right? right. Trapped with all these people that you uh, love and hate at the same time. is It's a very good sort of crucible-like setting for the show, for this episode, where, you know, somebody's got to go, somebody's getting eliminated. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. This water has this... Uh, you know, aside from all the other, you know, things you can associate with it in this show specifically, it has this association with, you know, bodies lying underneath and this sort of procession or this dredging up of bodies from the water and the possibility that somebody else is just going to get disappeared overboard like they did in those shadow logs. Yeah, I mean, the show is at its best, you know, and when the characters are, are all together like this and anything can can happen at, at any moment. Um but, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely reminded me a little bit of, you know, like, high-profile deaths like Natalie Wood, um, you know, things, events and, and, and incidents that, you know, will never be resolved because of, <clears throat> sorry, sorry, Dan, um, <laughs> you know, those types of, of incidents and deaths that will never be resolved because of, the nature of water itself um and and i think uh yeah they're they're just it, it was pretty impressive how they infused this um this tension and this this feeling of morbidity into the episode um against this beautiful backdrop and these pastel clothing and and, and whatnot yeah and i think that sort of the setting of the episode um being this kind of just like beautiful sort of scenery and it's just almost like just almost like oh just very over the top kind of like luxury of this yacht and then just sort of the way that everybody um kind of acts on the yacht too is like sort of like this sort of sunniness uh, of like the setting is all kind of kept up through like these niceties of um you know it's not you know everyone's sort of trying to look like they're like lo- the way that logan says you know everyone have a good time and everyone yeah. drink up, everyone drink up. And it's sort of like, you know, the the, the mood of the, of the yacht is supposed to almost match kind of the setting, but like, it's just so not that at all, but everyone's kind of half-heartedly trying to like, I mean, unless they're on like the inflatable, the inflatable slide, uh, you know, say, yeah. <laughs> which is like the only we time we're the slide. <laughs> so you got the slide, but like, otherwise a lot of people are kind of sitting in places where it almost looks like it, it's like the atmosphere of like an awkward high school cafeteria where like everyone's just sort of like yeah in little groups little pairings and you know trying to put on some sort of face of you know either trying to keep to themselves like i think jerry's reading a book and you know just everyone kind of sort of trying to exist in this in this space where the tension is so high right. and there's this almost like timetable of like we're not going to talk about this till tomorrow but everyone has to kind of try to enjoy themselves somehow and um and and also yeah the, the group episodes are always my favorite where everyone kind of 
you know, flocks to some location. And um, so this is sort of such a great um, example of one of those episodes where everyone's very isolated and not to, I'm, I swear I'm not going to talk about Survivor the entire episode, <laughs> you know, on Survivor, uh, they're on an island surrounded by water. So it sort of uh, is another correlation, but yeah, it's, it's just the group episodes are always just like, so, so fun. Yeah. There's a nice subgenre of like European thrillers that take place like on boats or by like seaside locations, like the talented Mr. Ripley, like knife in the water, um, mm-hmm. and there's usually an element in those movies of like, you know, eroticism with like exposed skin and like all these beautiful sights. Um, but the, the just death pall that hangs over this episode <laughs> in yeah. the show really oh, sucks any of that <laughs> out of the proceedings. It's quiet. It was like a, it was a quiet episode. I mean, yeah. like you, you see this yacht and you see all the trappings of wealth and you think like they're going to be listening to music, you know, uh, what is it? S- sails out, nails out. <laughs> like, yeah, like that. It's, it's gonna. It should be something celebratory, and it's. It's of course, you know, everywhere the Roys go, they bring doom and gloom and death with them. This was no exception. But yeah, it was. It was interesting to see, like, you know, sort of the the outsiders enjoying um, the the yacht and and its amenities a little bit more than the insiders like you know the the slide and stuff none of the siblings go on the slide it's just like willa and connor i guess he's a sibling (laughs) (laughs) technically (laughs) and you know greg lounging with his rosé um you know you you have a favorite champagne now (laughs) but um yeah definitely the ripley figure here Yeah, so I guess that that brings us to you know, the yeah, beginning let's, of the, let's, the episode. Yeah, yeah. Let's just let's just dive in because uh, Logan is in Croatia driving with Hugo as he's watching the testimony of Greg uh, <laughs> in DC, which is the first thing we see. And I felt like <laughs> this had to be like it's 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 almost kind of extraneous to what follows. So I, I feel like this had to have been like a scene that they deleted in uh the, in episode nine, and they were just like, we right. gotta get this in somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it really <laughs> feels like it that. in with Logan and Hugo watching in the back of the car, and of course Greg. <laughs> It's like can't even answer questions because he's so <laughs> focused on like sputtering formal language like uh, Gil asking him what his name is and he goes if it is to be said so let, let it be so <laughs> so be so be it so it is which t- to me is the new so say we all uh it's just, it's so good <laughs> yeah followed up this week by uh Mark Zuckerberg IRL dead catting uh, oh my god <laughs> <laughs> the memes were endless yeah and then we got Greg um, with walking into the yacht with Naomi and Ken saying that, you know, he wished he had just answered every question with no woman, no cry. <laughs> no woman, no cry. That's so good. <laughs> that is the one thing where it's like, this episode's oh pretty dark, but I would think oh. of that like every so often for like the next few days and just crack up. Oh. No woman, no so cry. good. But, um, Logan, but Logan's in the back of the car with Hugo watching this, and I think he, Hugo eventually is like, this kid might be talking himself onto your list, yeah. because uh, he's basically drawn up a list, Logan has, of the entire executive class, um, plus all the kids, and, you know, he's kind of, like, circled all the people who aren't in his bloodline, you know, um, and Tom. He's, he's, cir- he's, he's circled, like, Jerry, Carl, Carolina, Frank, you know, who can we cut loose, because... At the end of the last episode, the thing that's driving the plot here 
is that he's thinking, you know, this performance that Ken gives at the hearings um, uh, is angry enough and fiery enough that it looks good on TV. But at the end of the day, the shareholders are still so ill at ease because of the breadth and depth of this scandal that somebody big, somebody at the top has got to go in order to make them feel like, yes, the company is going to be more sustainable going forward. And they're really going to take efforts to root out this bad behavior that's going to be, you know, at least a major financial liability for them going forward. So he's trying to figure out who's going to go. And then it's in that car with Hugo that he gets a call from one of his major shareholders or somebody who represents a chunk of major shareholders, a guy named Felipe, who he takes a call from and Felipe says, look, you know, we've talked about this and we think that the only logical choice is, is you, Logan. You've got to be the one to go. And so the thing that sets up this episode, this sort of driving, inciting incident is basically, I think, Logan about as backed into a corner as he's ever been. There's a very compelling argument, pretty ironclad argument that he's got to be the one to leave his own company. And although he continues to play this part of, you know, the ringmaster manipulating everybody just so, he really is acting out of a really panicked sense of self-preservation in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. That um, that phone call and, and scene with Hugo was sort of the first indication to me that Logan is clearly not masterminding anything in this episode. Um, I know there might be some opinions to the contrary, but to me, um, it read as he's completely lost. Um, he has no idea what to do. And, and even after he hangs up that call, he's sort of in this kind of breathy, agitated state that reminded me of you know, how he was in the pilot before his aneurysm and a couple other times when his, his health has, has faltered. Um, I think Hugo asks him if he wants a coffee. They're like at a gas station. And he just says, I want... And he has to sit down on the bench and he can't say anything else. And then it, you know, cuts to the theme. And, you know, so I think it's safe to say this is not a man who has any sort of clear plan um, going forward and is, is sort of rattled by the idea that he might have to sacrifice himself. Yeah, and I think that um, it's also the first sign that, you know, he's got his, before that phone call, he's got that notepad of, of everybody listed. And I, I think that hearing that the, you know, that Philippe is, that everyone's thinking that it really just should be him. It's a very clear indicator that it's not going to be, um, you know, some combination of like the Jerry's and the Franks and the Carls that, that, that this is a, a huge um, sort of, you know, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but just a, a huge uh, sort of, yeah, sacrifice that's, that has to be made in that it's, uh, it's just not, it's not going to be as easy as um, maybe he would have liked to, you know, right. Let himself think that it would have been that there's an easy out. Just get rid of somebody. Throw you know, have like a bill or a you know some uh, some other combination of people mm-hmm. with the scapegoat. That um that this is bigger than he even thought it. That you know he even thought it was. And uh, it's a real sense of panic sort of starting out the episode. Yeah, I mean, as as grudgingly as Logan is saying, oh, you know, well, we got to let somebody like, you know, Jerry or Carl go. That's kind of the way business has always worked, right? You take out one of your lieutenants and things just kind of keep churning as usual. But what's the, what's really unfolded in the last few episodes is the sense that after the first half of the season sets up this device of, 
you know, the family business, the Waystar Towers, this kind of fortress, uh, this cage that they're all in, the walls have been sort of breached in the last few episodes, and there's this real sense that the world is changing and that they are not going to be able to keep doing things the way they have been, and something fundamental has got to change, and that's what Logan is sort of uh, furiously trying to avoid. Yeah. And he has <clears throat> something he's been furiously trying to avoid all season. You know, that sort of theme has been coursing through the episodes of, um, you know, the idea of, of dinosaur calling and, and um, you know, old world versus new world. I mean, it's established in the first season as well, but, you know, much more explicit in the second season. Yeah. And yeah, I've, I've talked a lot about, yeah, that kind of animating uh device of you know walls and a cage and I, I think that what this show does to kind of put a bow on that and to kind of resolve that in a way that um, sort of puts an end to this sort of conflict that's been going on all season um, while also continuing it is just really well we'll get there but it, it's it's I'm continually just amazed at uh, what Armstrong and his writers were able to do with the dramatic structure of the show. Um, but um, let's take a quick uh, detour and go to uh, Connor and Willa, who uh, uh, they're they're coming fresh from opening night uh, for Sands. Uh, and uh, Will, Willa does not want to read the reviews for Sands because she doesn't want it to ruin her vacation or whatever. But Connor's got so much money invested, he has to know. And that sets up this incredibly funny scene where Connor is scrolling through what looks to be just like a batch of reviews that has been sent to him on his iPad. And she's like, I'll just look at your face. And he like tries to fake a smile, but he's just like, like crumbling immediately. And then uh, Willa looks at one and immediately tosses the tablet in the ocean. So I, I guess Sans wasn't as good as it sounded, I guess. This is just... <laughs> it sounded like a great play. It, maybe it was. Maybe it was just the sand. They couldn't get the right sand, and they had that. They got. Maybe they can bring some of the nice beach sand back from Croatia. That'll, that'll, that'll save it. Yeah, hopefully, um, you know, Ken's playing and also Shiv's playing both both in the play. We'll uh, we'll find new work soon. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also this exchange then later with Connor and Logan where Connor asks his dad for a hundred million dollar loan. <laughs> I, I, did I, did his, uh, a little, like, a little hundred mil. How much he was going to ask for? Like, uh, how has, much money could he be spending on this? I, knew, I had a feeling he was going to ask for a hundred million. I don't know why. And then it's he called said it. Sands. Is this Spider-Man <laughs> turn Sands. off the dark? What happens in this play? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I just love how he calls it a little hundred mil. Like, it's just... No oh, big deal, yeah. And God. I mean, Logan doesn't really flinch, but then Logan sort of says, all right, I can work with that, but you need to drop out of the presidential race. And Connor's like, what? And I've, you know, got a team, and, you know, we're doing ads and, and everything. And then Logan says, it's a horseshit pipe dream. You know, you're a joke. Everyone thinks you're a joke, and you're fucking embarrassing me, which... You know, is um, you know, kind of how Connor's arc has yeah. <laughs> has uh, yeah has proceeded throughout the course of the show. Um, but you know, you see that he's upset by it, as he has been upset in other moments um, towards Dad in this in the show. Although far more frequently, he's seeing his praises. But you know the his place in the world is clearly defined here. 
by Logan and Connor feels it. You know, we, we see the, the next morning he asks for a whole bottle of uh, burgundy for breakfast. He has that ridiculous self offering during the, uh, the tribal council. Oh my scene. God. I forgot about that. Oh, <laughs> like, no. Kill me. So we'll get to it. But yeah. Um, so that was, yeah, poor Connor. Um, and I think he really does love Willa. Um, so we'll see. You know, if if he can't do anything for her anymore, if he if he decides to continue with his presidential run or not. But um Yeah, everybody's yeah. been talking about how they promised that every season was gonna be about a different child. So we had the Ken season, we had the Shiv season, they're like Roman's next. I'm like, No, 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 Roman's on holes. We need Connor season. <laughs> I, need, I, need, I need Alan Ruck center stage. Alan Ruck Emmy season. We're doing it. <laughs> Yeah, so then um, Roman, Laird, and Carl all arrive from their um, ordeal in Turkey. And they, as they arrive on the boat, everyone's sort of taking jabs at Roman, um, which he's not tickled by. Um, seems like his brush with death has chastened him a bit. And there's sort of this flattened affect that we don't typically get with Roman. Um, but he does ask for a beer and say that he has a video of Carl almost shitting himself in a bucket. So, you know still realistic and, and true to personality there was, but there were a couple of really good jabs in there my favorite was the one uh where jerry says that would have been really traumatizing if you weren't already, <laughs> weren't so already fucked so fucked <laughs> <laughs> the way she delivered it was so good too it was so fucking funny i screamed um but yeah roman you know he's he's been to war and back and <laughs> he's, he's starting to <laughs> He was in a hotel. He had to like he had to like sleep <laughs> yeah. in a chair. Four seasons. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, there there was that moment also in the in the car with Hugo when um, Logan asks, "Is he okay or is he safe?" And usually when he's asking that, it's about Ken. But this time it was about Roman, and Hugo's like, "We got them, you know, got them shrink and clothes." So we have to assume that they're coming straight um, from from Turkey. So this must not be very long after the hearings and after the the um the coup ordeal he does say they like went to lunch with the ambassador or something yeah right so probably a few days um but yeah in that first scene with you know the siblings back together and they're sort of sitting on the yacht um roman compliments kendall on his performance at the hearing and he's very sincere and and, <laughs> and <laughs> kendall is waiting like you know okay you know for the, for the other shoe shop, be like, yeah, you did really good for, you know, fucking piece of shit. And Roman's like, no, like you, you did really good. And, um, you know, you see, see Roman sort of <laughs> some earnesty emerging from some earnestness emerging from him that, that we haven't seen in the past, which, um, you know, was kind of cute. And it was, it was a cute scene of them together where, um, Roman is like, if we come through all this, is there a thing where we can like talk to each other about stuff normally? <laughs> and there's this awkward, awkward pause, and then Shiv starts speaking in this weird baby voice, and her they start doing these awful baby voices. It oh was my God. so funny. <laughs> oh, it was hysterical. It was like, and it's so yeah, like the, so it's, sweet too. Yeah, it's a follow up to the scene in the last season. Uh, well, not the last season finale, but episode nine from the first season where they're together on the boat. Yeah. Uh, 
they're they're also on a boat in this one and um, they uh sort of seem to reconnect on a sibling level where you get a sense of just like the fondness that they have for each other and yeah i mean like that scene is like yeah it's about them shiv and ken like deflecting the idea that they're going to connect sincerely um but there is also just a sense of that like old childhood dynamic there one of the things these actors are so good at is just evoking in just kind of like gesture and performance style um you know patterns that you sense have been in place for a long time and just like a sort of personal shared history between people and that scene is just like a really good example of that right it's a great example of the show knowing its characters so well their history so well but also still kind of being able to um you know flip the script a bit in the sense that now roman is the mature one who's not making the baby voices and who's saying you know how how am am i the adult here in this scenario (laughs) um you know yeah is, i mean yeah. we really sorry we really see the maturity um and like the change in roman in that scene with logan and laird and carl um there uh, uh logan enters the yacht at the end of that scene uh where like they see the helicopter i think it's ken who says emotional gunship incoming <laughs> um, which is pretty good but logan immediately wants to uh meet with laird and carl and roman and talk about the deal and uh, Laird is all hyped up about this. And this is kind of like the, the first time this show has like really used Danny Houston really well. Um, they kind of wait till the end, but um, he kind of comes more into focus as kind of like who he is and what motivates him. And it turns out it's entirely money because he is really eager for this deal to happen so he can net a big profit from bringing it together. Um, but as Roman says, you know, the deal is kind of shaky. They're not dealing with Edward anymore. They're dealing with... Um, you know, like the president's son, son-in-law, and he's really flaky and he doesn't have a good sense that the deal is super solid. And if it gets out in the press that they're going after this kind of money, this, you know, Middle Eastern money, um, that it's going to totally tank them in the public and they'll have no chance of uh, surviving the takeover bid. Which, you know, yeah, is Laird... what Logan needs to hear and not what he wants to hear, which is a new thing. For exactly, them. yeah. And, and Laird clearly um, is very much motivated by the, the potential of a huge um, payoff here. But he, his hyping up of Roman, I mean, he genuinely believes it. He genuinely thinks that Roman did a good job. And as we discussed in our last episode, Roman really did do a good job. Um, but it this was... I think a really important moment for Roman um, when Laird says, you know, this situation is all about relationships when you know he's trying to sort of butter Logan up and convince him that the deal is a smart move. This sort of activates Roman. You see something sort of um, light up in his brain and um, you know, he starts talking about how they were flaky and he says, um, you know, he makes this really good case, not only about the fact that, you know, these people don't seem trustworthy, but that it's just not a good deal. Um, if, if, you know, they want to completely rebalance their portfolio, why are they, you know, doing one huge $10 billion shot as opposed to not, you know, spreading it out. Um, and, you know, Roman says, I wish it was real. I really fucking do, which, you know, speaks to the Roy's ongoing relationship to you know, the way that they shape, distort reality to suit their needs. And in this case, it was a Roy genuinely accounting for something that that wasn't real, even though they wished otherwise. And it very much, you know, Roman's explanation here, he says, um, you know, he was cokey, bullshit, 3 a.m. scotch, see you in the morning. He's not showing up. Um, you know, Carl quietly agrees. 
we see really Roman sort of emotional acumen and, and, and his um, intuition that we've talked about, you know, over time um, that has reared its head at certain moments. Um, we see it really play to, um, you know, the Roy's benefit here, um, you know. Yeah. And that, uh, sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I really love this scene a lot. Um, and then really just sort of Roman's sort of shift or downshift into kind of a more uh, contemplative, I guess, frame of mind that he's in the whole episode. Uh, there's a lot of time where he's kind of quipping, but a lot of it's sort of half-hearted. Um, but in this scene, uh, and, and Kira Hulkin is so great in this scene because throughout the show, he's sort of, anytime there's something to do with um, business or a deal or something that he's just not, doesn't have the experience of doing, but kind of has to seem like he does, he has this sort of uh, shrinking quality to his performance. He kind of like shrinks back mm -hmm. a bit. And uh, he has that in this scene, but what he, he you know, uh, pushes through it and it's not, it's not, like that shrinking quality isn't because he's, you know, weak or lazy in that moment. It's because he has actually good instincts uh, for what went down and has to sort of push through the fear of saying the thing that nobody wants to hear. And uh, the way he kind of finds his voice and confidence in kind of expressing that is really compelling to watch, I thought. And it actually made me think of uh, the, the way that he sort of reads this, sort of reads everything that went down uh, correctly I would assume it reminded me of the because I've been rewatching season one and it reminded me of the scene where he talks to the Volter guy whose name I cannot remember for the life of me right now. But Lawrence, um, yeah. Lawrence, yes, Lawrence. When he talks to the Volter guy about yeah, Lawrence about um, getting the vote for the um, no confidence and right. how like that that scene, like you know, he completely misreads that scene. I mean, he's like talks to Kendall on the phone. And he's like, no, we're good. It's good. We got him. It's fine. And it's like uh, like the vibes are not like really reflecting that uh and how here it's really a very different sort of thing where he is a lot seems a lot more perceptive and you know even though it means that it would that his performance wasn't good enough that his the job he did wasn't good enough or that it just maybe it was good enough but it just didn't get the job done because nothing would have uh you know for him to kind of be able to bring that to the table to his father who he's basically terrified of in in moments like that where he would have to be the sort of dissenting voice right. um that he's able to push through and say that it was just really uh it's just such a great scene for that reason i thought yeah and something that's sort of been been germinating all season mm -hmm. and then particularly the last few episodes um roman's sort of people skills emotional skills that we've talked about that um that are there you know perhaps they need to be developed and, and tailored i mean and um and sort of teased out a bit but yeah I mean this newfound confidence was a really good way to to sort of show um that that Roman you know has sort of you know maybe not changed um I know that you know, we don't want to get into the existential question of you know can these people change but um you know he, he's definitely taking on a new perspective and um you know finding his voice like you said and and a situation where otherwise he, you know, he, he would have, you know, shrunken away and, and in fear. 
Yeah, I think, um, yeah, Katie, bringing up the scene with Lawrence in season one is really instructive in thinking about, you know, other instances where Roman has really shit the bed, uh, notably (laughs) in uh, hunting, where he thinks he can arrange the... um, the Pierce deal over a text right. to Naomi <laughs> oh, no. um, is oh, that, God. you know, these, these previous instances has mostly been him relying and thinking that his personal skills can solve everything. Cause that's what he's good at. And it's in this case where he goes beyond that and says, okay, there's a reality that exists beyond the glad handing and the bullshit and my million dollar smile. There's something else at play here. And that really sets up Laird as this interesting counterpoint, as this person who is completely superficial and who exists without any ties to the real world, to consequences, who is super happy to just kind of skate through, get his fee and fuck off out of there. Um, And he really represents, I think, this whole world of financialization and financial institutions that are entirely based on relationships and manufactured capital. And as soon as they're like, hey, Laird, you know, we're going to have to work a little bit harder to find something. He's like, nope, no, thank you. I am going out to the water and you guys can face reality on your own because that's not what I do. Yeah, and I think that um, it's you know, the, with the instance with um, with, the, with the Naomi text thing, which I had completely forgotten about, uh, that it's sort of like a, it is a flip-flop of, you know, there in those instances, you know, he does a pretty piss-poor job and thinks he's got it. And then in this instance, he's done a really good job, but knows he hasn't got it. And his ability to recognize that um, is so interesting. And, and, yeah. uh, and, and then, yeah, just then the next shot with Laird just on the, on the raft, just... <laughs> Just throw it away. It's gone. He's out. <laughs> Good luck. First one gone. Yeah. Yeah. He is. He's off to find. Uh, he's off to find some. Yeah, Singaporean billionaire that he can get another. <laughs> they can get another fee from. He's going to be back next year when they're uh, doing uh, sovereign wealth fund stuff in Malaysia. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this was definitely a critical scene in in setting up. You know, Logan eventually naming him as CEO. You know, we've seen some of his strengths emerge but i think this was really a critical moment um and for logan to realize that you know roman has some chops succession power rankings roman number one (laughs) we'll we'll see where he is by the end of the episode (laughs) so then yeah logan is still sort of you know aimlessly looking about and we find him you know looking over the railing of one of the yacht's many floors. I'm not sure which one. Um, and Ken appears and asks how it went and obviously it didn't go well. And, you know, Logan starts talking sort of to himself, but Ken is there and he says, you know, me, I can't believe it. I never did anything really. A good Catholic lad who couldn't even take his undershirt off, undershirt off in front of his wife. Me, all the rest behave like a pack of fucking stray dogs. No. And, you know, this is obviously in reference to this entire scandal and affair and the idea that, um, you know, Logan feels like he should be insulated from it because he didn't necessarily really partake in, um, you know, some of the nastiness. You know, he just knew that it happened. Um, and, and to me, that really kind of cemented Logan's sociopathy or at least near sociopathy and I think it served as a really important reminder for Ken that dad saw and knew about everything that happened um and you know it didn't phase him one bit so you know one of those 
moments that makes the final twist feel inevitable in retrospect. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, are we on to the, um, the tribal council, do we think, or. Um, yeah, I mean, basically after, after that conversation, I think Logan, he announces that, you know, today's for enjoyment, (laughs) which nobody is really enjoying themselves tomorrow. Not so much. Um, and then, yeah, you know, we get, we have this, there's just one moment I want to point out. Roman starts sort of doing like odds making about who's (laughs) going to be kicked out. Um, and you know, Carl's pleading like we're real people, (laughs) which is just. You know, it's very funny, but also, you know, again, just this constant um, reference back to the idea of reality and who is real and who has a face. Also, Jerry and Roman are kind of have a cute cuddled up moment there. and They're sitting together, little lovebirds. And, and um, <laughs> Jerry is actually reading Dagmara um, Dominic, hopefully I said that right, who plays Carolina. Um, her actual book in real life, The Lullaby of Polish Girls, which I thought was just um, a sweet touch. And I know the two of them are, are very close in real life. Carolina needs to be on this boat, man. I mean, she has got to be on the chopping <laughs> yeah. block. Come on. Yeah. There's no way that she wasn't there arranging like all the payouts personally. I mean, get real. Yeah. I agree. So, yeah, then we have um, Naomi. Oh, right. Yeah. So Naomi is on the boat. You know, it's it's interesting how this show has used Naomi Pierce after uh, Annabelle Dexter Jones uh, made such a strong impression in Turnhaven. She's kind of been at the periphery in these last few episodes. She's there um, in England in return and she's there in D.C. sort of there to support Ken. And so we have this sense that the relationship has continued. But we don't really get a sense, I think, until this episode of quite what it means to Ken, because mm-hmm. Logan quite pointedly, uh, passive aggressively tells Ken that, you know, there's not enough room on the ship. There's business to do here. He doesn't want her there. Uh, he's been very He's such reluctant. a dick. He says there's he's not been, enough provisions. Not enough provisions. <laughs> there's not, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, which is also a callback to Tom telling Nate that uh, they don't have a place for him to oh stay. Oh my god, yeah. At the wedding. Um, such a great Put rich line back. It's like, oh, you're free loading off of us how dare you <laughs> right. um, yeah so he's just t- he tells her that she's got to go and i mean we've seen before that logan is you know hesitant to get involved with ken's uh significant others because you know often justifiably because they don't last very long but also in this particular case he raises uh the fact that naomi's also an addict and he doesn't want them associating and of course there's bad blood from the pure steel and we can i think infer a number of other reasons that he doesn't want her there um were you guys thinking of anything in particular that might have been on logan's mind uh i you know i i think that uh just maybe this idea of isolating ken you know i i, yeah. I think that there's a big focus on him being uh sort of once Naomi leaves we see him in you know wearing headphones during a lot of the episode I think that sort of cutting her off finding a way to kind of just isolate him on this yacht is uh you know something that Logan is very cognizant of of doing I think yeah absolutely I think that's more striking for me than even the drug stuff because we don't really know if you know the nature of their recovery and if they're doing drugs I mean we we saw Turnhaven but but we don't know but I think you know more resonant is the idea that came up in return when Naomi um, came to England and, you know, immediately 
Logan sort of got wind that Ken was kind of happy, like they were going to go to the zoo. Um, in this episode, they're about to jet ski and they're sort of riffing on each other. And, you know, they're clearly, there's clearly affection that's been, um, that's been cultivated there between them. And, and we don't know to what extent, but um, Logan talks about, you know, to pleads with dad, you know, she was so much of a support to me in DC. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think it's, it's much more about Logan feeling threatened by um, Kendall having a partner who, um, you know, understands this world and who maybe is a little bit of a black sheep herself. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, it's, you know, just in keeping with the entire, you know, kind of core dynamic of this show between the two of them that that um you know Naomi says it perfectly that he loves the broken you um she clearly gets it um we don't know how much Ken has told Naomi I've always theorized that she was going to be the first person he would tell about um you know the Chappaquiddick incident but clearly she gets it and I think Logan senses that she gets it and um you know that is not something that he can abide as he needs Roman I mean as he needs Kendall to to be weak yeah. And then she sort of wraps it up as she leaves and, you know, he's like, oh, so, you know, maybe I'll meet you there. And she says, maybe. And it's sort of vague. And I think it's referring more to the idea of, of, of freedom as opposed to the physical space they're in. And brings back, you know, Kendall saying to Naomi and turn him and don't block your own escape. Um, so I think, you know, these are just little things throughout the episode that might be building up, accumulating inside of Kendall. Um where you know might lead him to his decision at the end um that how much can he possibly take of this from his father yeah i think that's that's really apt and that takes us up to as we said the the tribal council scene uh where i think i think in the beginning of that scene logan says like you know hey let's uh let's eat you know and then we'll talk tomorrow and everybody's like dad like we're not we're not gonna be able to focus on anything let's just let's can we just do this uh and so everybody you know the family the executive class everybody is sitting at the table and they're just gonna hash out you know just real rational you know who's got to go um and i think you know uh katie you know uh take it away this is uh this is kind of your, oh, no. your scene your moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> this, what, what, okay. what was your expert analysis of this scene well it made who, me who's think, got, who, who's got the upper hand nerdy. going into this scene uh, well okay i'm gonna get real nerdy uh for a second and like <laughs> okay so there's like this thing about like old school survivor versus new school survivor and how like basically old school survivor you go into the tribal council and it's like a lockdown vote everyone kind of knows what's happening except for the people who don't know what's happening and in later seasons, it kind of evolves into this thing where it's um, much more, the gameplay gets a little more like crafty and uh, things are a lot more complicated. And, you know, so there's a lot more tribal councils that are like kind of these quote unquote live tribal councils where like there's this idea that the vote is open. Uh, it's not locked down. There's still people wavering at, you know, at their seats, like moments before they have to go up. So things become kind of more of this sort of open forum, which is what this whole scene is um is very much an open forum where there's this like basically this like hot potato being passed to everybody where um you know and it's just the way that it is where everyone it's getting passed off to everyone and they're just like well thank you carl and oh well you know thanks for that frank and it's it's like so 
it's just so good the way that like everyone sort of keeping up these appearances while they are trying to kind of throw each other under the bus. Um, but yeah, it's sort of like everyone kind of has to have their moment in the spotlight and like walk through fire and make a case for why it shouldn't be me. This is why it should be this person. And that's, that is what a lot of more recent seasons tribal councils are like, where everyone's kind of openly saying like, it could, shouldn't be me because this I'm value. I should, you know, I have value because of this, this, this. And a lot of times that has to do with kind of some of the reasons that they talk about here where it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm weak. I've, you know, I don't, why would you want to get rid of me? Like, I'm like a good kind of, you know, goat to bring to the end, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't, didn't contribute enough. And like, you know, this person's more important. It's kind of like almost you're sort of putting yourself down in order to kind of make someone else seem more valuable. And uh, there's so much of that happening in this scene uh, where everyone basically has to have their turn making a case for in their own defense and then making a case for somebody else. Um, and it's just such a great back and forth between everybody where everyone has to sort of have their moment. Yeah. And I, I thought think... it was, it was really cool how, and, and striking how each of the, the offerings that the characters make up um, are totally in line with the dynamics and the relationships that have been established. Like Roman offering up Frank is like, so you know, tracks so well because of his just ongoing frustration with Frank, <laughs> starting from Loads the pilot. Frank. <laughs> it's like, why are you even here? Um, and <laughs> Logan says that the, the boardroom coup is water under the bridge, and then Frank, like you said, he makes this case of minimizing his importance, saying that, you know, he'd be a less compelling sacrifice because um, he's tried to betray the family before, and then he offers up Carl. Um, and Carl goes back to Jerry, who Ken initially offers, and Logan rebuffs by saying, you know, no one is more loyal than Jerry. Um, and um, it was, Carl brings up the, uh, the, he says, the old coffee book is a bit blotty, and, you know, your daughter going first class on <clears throat> on the company coin. And then Jerry has a great retort about, um, <laughs> you know, Carl's indiscretion saying, oh, I just went for a sport massage. I had no idea it was that kind of establishment. <laughs> And Tom says, Carl sounds good. Sausage thief. I, which I didn't notice. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so good. Can I just say really quick that yeah. the, the way this scene starts is with that really great moment where Logan goes, look, I think, you know, I think it's got to oh, be me. I'm the only one that makes sense. And ev- so there's like a beat where everybody yeah. goes, no, dad, yeah. not you. Never. <laughs> and Tom's he goes, like, and, no. And he has the line where he's like, well, I may not be responsible, but the buck's got to stop somewhere. <laughs> Just completely absolving himself as he pretends right. to sacrifice himself. And then and then there's that crucial cutaway where Roman is looking yes. over and just rolls his eyes, uh, so which good. is really interesting. The fact that Roman is, is, is uh, willing to just kind of like openly uh, say, yeah, this is bullshit, dad, uh, in front of everybody. But, you know, of course, silently. Um, and yeah, this this whole scene is just like I think it's 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 underrated the degree to which scenes like this they did another one in Turnhaven um, are so tremendously difficult to sh- to write and shoot and act where all the actors have to kind of be like constantly in character and like ready mm-hmm. to go and like all their reactions have to be on point, which is where you know a lot of that like live theater training that so many of these actors are really steeped in uh, comes in. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to shout out the just kind of like the technical impressiveness of this scene. Yeah, I think McFadden said that there were three or four cameras, um, and so they just have to be, you know, on their best at all times. And it was the same case in Turnhaven, which, um, you know, 
both scenes are constructed beautifully. Also directed by Mark Mylod. Yeah. I also want to mention that one thing that Logan says before um, the tribal scene kind of goes down. He says, most things don't exist, but this exists because it's family. We are a family, Um, which is, you know, very creepy, very out of touch, um, Mm. you know, typical Logan type of of rhetoric. Um, But, you know, I think it's uh, important to remember that things do exist outside of Logan's world and he's just starting to learn that you know we talked about that a little bit the beginning of the episode Um, but at this point he is still of this idea that things can work out um, because the the power of family um, you know or or whatever he conceives of as as family his his definition of it which is certainly probably not (laughs) any of our definitions of it and I also think that he uses that um, very, uh, you know, particularly with the, I love everything that Jerry says to Roman in that earlier scene about, you know, why is he doing it this way and, and all this stuff. And Jerry's just like, get everyone together, make it like this kind of nice gathering where like everyone's got blood on their hands, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's kind of the way that, uh, the way that it, that it's um, presented is just sort of, yeah, this, sort of everyone's everyone's in on it kind of a thing. And I think so. I think his use of family in, in this instance is almost like supposed to make everyone feel like they're part of this, you know, this, you know, Waystar Royco family. Right. Uh, but it's, but it's such bullshit. So. Yeah, right. So uh, you're, you're all implicated. You're all trapped yeah. here with me. Yeah. Yeah. It's Jerry like also makes a reference. Jerry makes a reference to the Politburo in the prior scene. Yeah. And this is a very, like, Stalin-esque uh, tactic of just, like, getting everybody to kind of take all these contradictory positions in front of you so that they basically have to acknowledge that they're going to go along with what whatever your decision is in the end. Right. Same thing in yeah. the hunting scene. Yep. Yeah, it's a form of theater. It's, like, so yeah. performative. I'm also... So- uh, have this on TV right now, and I just want to shout out real quick that the dress J. Smith Cameron is wearing is on point. Very oh, nice. Nice. The, nice. The, the, green, the green really pops at that table. Yeah, no, it's really pretty. Um, yeah, we'll have a succession close episode at some point in the off season. But yeah, so at this point, um, most people have offered up Jerry. Um, but then, you know, here comes Roman saving his girl. White um, but he, but he, <laughs> but he does it in a way that's not just, you know, he, he, people are like, why, you know, Logan's like, what's your reasoning? And, you know, instead of floundering, he's like, well, you know, not to be crude, but haven't we killed enough women already, which is, you know, awful, but it's actually a really smart way <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to no. go about protecting Jerry uh, without saying she's my sex mom. And I, you can't, you can't, <laughs> you can't get rid of her. Oh, yeah. I love it. <laughs> Um, so then, you know, he says, obviously it's Tom, you know, Tom is the face of all of this. And Kendall says, you know, I fucking love you, dude, but you know, this is the time we're all saying things. And Tom is like, well, I took the beating in DC, you know, I'm a loyal servant. And Shiv is like, yeah, Tom looks logical. You know, he's, he's like family, but he's not, which just, you know, I think. I've been saying throughout the season, like, Tom is reaching his edge with Shiv, and this clearly was, you know, the last straw. 
Um, that is as like we... that is the thing. That is the insecurity that Tom has. That is the like thing that haunts his every waking moment. Right. Is that he will never really belong, and she and his wife says it that he so will callously, <laughs> In the worst possible context. It is yeah. the worst thing she could have done. And we haven't even talked about, you know, her efforts to get him to partake in a threesome, which he hilariously does not want to do and would rather their third, like, wait in the bathroom while they fucking marry. <laughs> um, I'm not a hippie, Shiv. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's such a good line. Um, yeah. It's, so, yeah, it's the yeah, worst I mean, possible thing that he could do. It was awful. And he kind of snaps at her. I mean, rightfully so. He does. Um, it's awful. I mean, just the way she says it, she says it's so cold and clinically, um, you know, and then she later defends herself by saying, well, I can't look, you know, like I have a conflict of interest. It's just like, fuck you, Shiv. Uh, <laughs> this is your I know. I know. <laughs> Everyone uh, knows that. It's not a secret marriage. Yeah. So then Jerry, smartfully, smartfully, I don't know what I'm talking about. Jerry, <laughs> then <laughs> she, uh, you know, kind of throws out Shiv's name and says, you know, well, if we were going to, you know, think about Shiv, then we could talk about witness tampering, the idea that she was going to take over. And Shiv is kind of like, fuck you. I've never been on the inside. Then Roman's like, how about Shiv and Tom? <laughs> and <laughs> Logan asks then the big question, which, you know, I think everybody is thinking at this point, which is, does Tom work? Um, and Ken says, you know, in all honesty, he's not a big enough skull. Yeah. Which is yeah. what you've said, Brendan. Yeah, which yeah, is totally right. Um, Tom has was elevated fairly recently. He was not in charge of cruises for very long. He wasn't in charge of ATN for very long. Yeah, he made a big ass of himself on TV, and everybody would probably be happy to see him go because he's probably just a PR liability, if anything. But to see he really address the problem of corporate malfeasance and corruption not remotely. It's not even plausible that he would. Nor is it plausible that Shiv would, who hasn't been inside the company. Right. And then, um, you know, there, then, then Roman says, well, what, what about Tom with some Greg sprinkles? Greg sprinkles. <laughs> and Greg says, you know, what about you, Roman? You're widely known as a horrible person, which, um, you know, I liked because he kind of like, uh, you know, shrunk a little bit with that Greg sprinkles thing. And it was sort of, I don't know, typical first season Greg, but it's nice to yeah. see him assert himself a little bit yeah. with that, you know, you're widely known as a horrible person. Which He's a horrible person. Yeah. Kind of true. <laughs> Yeah, there's kind of a question of, like, why is Greg there on the boat when, you know, he's not really very important in the company? He's still just, like, an assistant, really. Uh, and it's it's obviously he wouldn't be the person to go because he doesn't have enough of a position of authority. But Roman's just making this point that's like, well, if we put him with somebody else, maybe they right. make the package look more enticing because we can blame a lot of the actual bad actions on him. Um, but I still think that's kind of implausible, ultimately. And the question of what exactly Greg is doing there ends up being quite germane to the end game of this episode. Right. Um, and I think the fact that Greg, you know, being Ewan's grandson and the ongoing tension and, you know, uncertainty about what's going on between Ewan and Logan is it makes Greg's presence a little bit more realistic. It's not like, you know, who the fuck is this guy? I mean, he does play some role in the family and, and some you know, he is a cudgel that, that Logan has used before um, to, you know, get at his brother. 
Um, I'm sure they haven't really talked about it, but you know, obviously, you and shares would be important in the shareholder meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there would be a reason to kind of try to use Greg as leverage, but they haven't really addressed that in that context. Yeah, we we didn't get um, anything from you and since since Dundee, but I, I mean, I'm sure he'll be back. Yeah, um, ghost of Christmas past, you'll show up again. <laughs> Um, so then next, uh, the next big scene is, uh, next well, coast, please, well, Julius. First Connor, first Connor um, just says, you know, strap me to the parachute and toss me in the volcano. Oh my God. <laughs> Which was, so... <laughs> Which is, once again, it's like, you're not even part of the company. And like, <laughs> somebody's like, Which Logan's like, we'll bear it in mind. <laughs> yeah, no, that like condescending little like sort of hand pat where it's like, you, you yeah. do, Connor. It's like, oh boy, where he's like, he's got this whole plan about how I was the mastermind the whole time. It's just like, oh lord. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, puppet master. Yep. Oh. <laughs> it's just, oh god. So then we have, uh, yeah, we so two do things Stewie happen. or Tom and, Tom and Shiv in the code. Well, Tom and Shiv scene actually comes first, but yeah. Um, okay. uh, uh, Ken, Ken goes to blow off some steam on the treadmill. Hilariously, <laughs> he is listening to LCD Sound System's North American Scum, which is both a very kind of like apropos song title and right. also just an incredibly funny on-the-nose um, yeah. you know, skewering of Ken's basic uh, hipster white guy taste. Uh, and uh so uh logan asks him to set up a meeting with stewie who is in the region coincidentally or you know not by accident i'm sure they're there for they're all there for a reason um uh so they can they can see if there's a chance to strike a last ditch uh peace deal but before that uh shiv and tom go on a little sort of afternoon sojourn to a nice out of the way cove where they can sit uh, in peace, I think uh, Shiv is reading that Sally Rooney novel. <laughs> and, yeah, there's the there's the great bit where they pull up to a cove and they don't like it, and Tom says, "Next cove, please, Julius." Because <laughs> uh, he, he saw a sea urchin. Saw a sea urchin. <laughs> we we can find yeah. the best cove. <laughs> so they do find a great cove. They do find this little out of the way spot um, where it's just the two of them on the beach sitting. And uh, we are treated to, I think, maybe my favorite scene in this episode, which is just some really fine acting from Sarah Snook and Matthew McFadden, where Tom sort of comes clean about, like, I am very unhappy a lot of the time. And a lot of it is because of, you know, partially because of what just happened, where it's really sounded like you didn't respect me or defend me at all in front of your family. And he has that really crushing line about how I wonder if the sad I'd be without you is worse than the sad I am being with you. Um, and I, 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 I was really impressed with, you know, McFadden has this gift. I mean, if, I think of this just like kind of large, solid physical frame that the show uses as like kind of a stand in for this sort of like Midwestern masculinity. And he has this great gift for turning it into this just like this big shuddering wreck sometimes as he did in uh, D.C. after that hearing where he was really falling mm-hmm. apart. And then the way that Snook plays this where she is just not used to being made to feel ashamed of her own actions and at the same time confronting this fear that the person that she has been taking for granted, really taking for granted for so long as this person that would never leave her and never hurt her, you know, possibly leaving her is just really enough to just completely, you know, rock her world. And uh, I was 
really just um, blown away by the acting in this scene. It's quite incredible from both of them. Yeah. It's a scene where I feel like you could, um, no matter how many times you watch it, there are just so many layers happening in what, in their faces and in, in just mm-hmm. the, the performances, the delivery, everything. I mean, my favorite, um, and just the, the characters are so complex in, in that moment too, that I, I feel like there's so much room to interpret and to think about how much certain things are, are weighing on the other person and how they're reacting to each other. And my favorite moment in that scene is, you know, when she um, is, all that emotion is registering on her face, but she, you know, Tom isn't looking at her. And then the way she says, I'm sorry, Tom, is so opposite to how, what we see on her face, where she still is putting up that defense, because the way she says, I'm sorry, Tom, is just, is kind of almost clinical and distancing, uh, trying to put on this sort of, like, um, sort of the shiv face of just, like, you know, sort of hard. But everything we see her going through, um, emotionally is very much the opposite of that and it's it reminded me of the um because i just watched like the season one finale like maybe two or three days ago and just that you know they have a huge scene together in in that in that episode where um where basically they they have that conversation that 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 they talk about here where it's about the sort of monogamy and how she confesses to nate about nate and all of that and sarah snook just has this amazing gift of kind of uh having showing her character as kind of experiencing these emotions that she's not expecting to be having and then having to manage that in the moment and then kind of right. try to turn mm. it into something else that that is more still kind of to her advantage or at least still trying to kind of put on a face and not make herself vulnerable in that moment uh you know because i think in in that season one finale she is feeling uh i mean i think disappointment with how the nate stuff worked out I and mean, then she had you know betrayed him with like the whole deal with Gil and Logan and all that but like she um you know it, it's this moment where I think she's feeling sort of similar things of like guilt and shame about how she's treated him but then she kind of and it's taking her by surprise but then she kind of morphs it into this I'm just not built for monogamy and, and kind of trying to get him to kind of be on the same page with that and here there's really nowhere to maneuver it he's just really sad like he's not right trying to he's not in a place where I mean he's always trying to manage his disappointment and 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 the way that he sees himself being kind of jerked around with trying to, I mean, Tom is just like such an open wound all the time with like a band, a little bandaid on it while he's flailing his arms. Like that is how I think of Tom. Like he is always in such agony. It's always yeah. on his face, but he's always trying to convince himself that he's not. And here, and he is in that season one finale where he is trying to be like, okay, I guess, you know, we could try this. Like, but he's like, he is so disappointed in that scene. But in this, there's there's nowhere for him to adapt to it. There, he's just he's just admitting that yeah. he is unhappy, and there's so there's no way, there's nothing for her to work with there. He's just he's just done, and I just think that the him kind of admitting that to himself, admitting that to her, her kind of having to deal with what her actions have done to him, and 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 her kind of seeing that she's being confronted by that. I mean, there's just so much going on in that scene, and it's just. The, the acting is just so incredible and the writing too yeah. I mean, it's just such a it's just such a beautiful piece like yeah yeah Katie I think that's super insightful and and um you know Tom sort of unloads you know this ton of bricks on Shiv when he says what we've all been thinking since the finale which is um you know you asked 
for an open relationship on our wedding <laughs> night yeah. on our yeah. wedding night and you know you can see at first she kind of like has this incredulous reaction to it and then she's like you know like you said she's trying to like you know build up her defense because Shiv pathologically you know needs control and she cannot handle discom- discomfort um in terms of you know any sort of uh, anything going on in her inner life and emotionally. So, you know, when he says that and she's like, Oh, well, you know, you've been stewing on that. Uh, he's like, yeah, actually I have, um, you know, and that might be a moment in the past where Tom would shut down. But like you said, um, at this point, like he's, he's reached the end of it and there's nowhere else for him to go except to, to speak his truth. And, um, I think, you know, the Roy's run into trouble when, when they're confronted with truth telling, um, mm-hmm. from people, yeah outside of their you know inner circle even though you would think that she would consider tom somebody in her inner circle but you know she doesn't really she doesn't even really think of him as part of the family um and tom kind of lays it out he's like i don't think it was cool what you did um and i think that doesn't necessarily speak to one thing i think that's widely applicable to you know her could be anything of you know her her cheating with nate her cheating with the actor the monogamy thing, the throwing under the bus in X, Y, and Z episode. I mean, Shiv has just been horrible. And, and to see Tom assert himself like this and her really caught off guard, really discomfited. And you can see, you know, the spectrum of, of emotions she's going through on her face, like you said. Um, and I think it was such a compelling scene because the content of, of what they're, you know, sort of arguing about is is so relatable and for anybody mm-hmm. um it's such a relatable romantic you know kind of dynamic in, in a relationship that's failing um you know the happy when i'm with you i think i saw on twitter like a ton of people said yeah. that moment yeah. just like really uh, hit them hard yeah um so again you know succession not being often something that we can relate to but this relationship um when distilled down you know to its its you know, core definition um, is quite relatable for, for a lot of people who've been in similar relationships. And, you know, I've talked about um, the anxious avoidant trap, which is, you know, based on attachment theory um, being sort of the model for, for Shiv and Tom's relationship and them being um, the embodiment of it. And I think this is sort of that, um, that dynamic at its climax um, where there's nowhere else for either of them to really go. Um, and, you know, even so it's, there's no resolution. Um, you know, he blows up, she doesn't know what to do with these emotions. She just says, you know, I'll talk to Logan, which is very cynical. And, um, but she's realizing that she really, really, really does not want to lose Tom. Um, and, you know, um, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, they don't make any sort of decision about what they're going to do but you know little things that I notice like you know she says you know when she says she's sorry and they go back he's still a gentleman like when they get off the boat he like reaches his hand out to help her and, and she sort of rebuffs him um you know so again we don't know they could fall back into the trap where she's like you know I'm so sorry and I need you and then he comes back but um you know, hopefully not. Um, he seems to have reached his limit. Um, but, you know, yeah. again, that's why this dynamic is is so common. Um, and it's so, so difficult to escape. 
Well, before we leave that beach scene real quick, I just want to say, I'm, again, I'm watching this on mute, and um, a, a common criticism of this show, insofar as there are common criticisms uh, among people that even really like it, is you know kind of the uh, profanity-laced and dick-joke-laced dialogue, which is present in this scene, too. There are a couple of great lines, like... Uh, Tom says he was shanghaied into an open borders free fuck trade deal. And, free fuck trade deal. Which is really good. And then there's the line where Tom says, you know, I do, but I also do demand to gobble the odd side dick. And the way that yeah. Snook indignantly repeats to oh, him, yeah. gobble the odd side dick with that look of resentment and fury is just like, like, again, I'm just watching her face like in silence. It's like, it's the the absence of cliche from the way she delivers that is just really refreshing. Like it's it's really mm-hmm. startling to me the way these actors, you know, are able to pull these genuine, like emotional uh, and spontaneous undercurrents from this dialogue that is quite easy to just kind of write along with because it's rhythmic and funny and pleasurable. Um, but yeah, the rawness, uh, the realness of this scene is just. Quite astonishing, um, and I should uh, we should move on before I say too many cliche things about it. <laughs> um, I, I think that, and I think that's something that connects uh, what you just said to sort of the upcoming scene with uh, Kendall and Logan and Stewie is that there's a there's kind of some of that um, you know with with the Shiv kind of repeating like you know gobble the outside dick, and then in in the Stewie and Kendall and Logan scene, you've got Stewie kind of like throwing this sort of you know this, you know, dick joke or like sort of very vile threat posturing that sort of happens between these like corporate guys back into um, Kendall's face, which I think is so interesting, uh, especially since the show had established that that's sort of something that um, Kendall, it's sort of part of his characterization and the way that he uses that almost in a way where it's like he thinks that's what he's supposed, how he's supposed to talk. And it kind of feels like very try hard a lot of the time, which Rewatching it, I, I realized how kind of carefully that's been done and how purposely that's been done. And I really like appreciate Absolutely, that. Yeah. Whereas before you're like, is this kind of bad writing? And then I'm like, oh, wait, no, this right, is like very right. purposeful the way this is being deployed. But um, but yeah, right. just that, that, that other, th- those are two instances in this episode where, you know, this kind of like weird phrasing of just like very clever phrasing is kind of being like thrown back at the person. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, like, yeah, blah, yeah. Blah. And it speaks to Stewie's, like, knowledge of Kendall and also yes. his, his general role in the show. Um, I mean, he finishes Kendall's sentence. Kendall starts going, you know, I'm going to do this and this. And it's almost, he's poking fun at Kendall, but he's almost poking fun at the show, too. Yeah. Um, because that sort of try-hardness of Kendall has characterized so much. Um, I mean, definitely of the first season, but oh, yeah. um, the second season as well. So, yeah, that was just such a great touch to have Stewie kind of finish that sentence for him and um, sort of, uh, you know, show how how silly he looks when he tries to talk yeah. like that. Yeah, and how yeah. empty it is. It's just, you mm-hmm. know, and how desperate it is, too, because at that point, Kendall is really desperate in that moment and kind of so grasping Logan, at, yeah. and so is Logan so they're kind of grasping at these words so even the way he's like I'm gonna come to you at night and I'm gonna like blah 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 and it's just like you you are reaching yeah. sentences at this point and Stewie calls Matt on it and it's you know it kind of shows what what all of those moments of kind of this confident you know mm-hmm. sort of banter are sort of at their core is just Kendall kind of um really reaching 
And Ari's yeah, I mean, whole whole posture in that scene of oh, just so he's good. kind of looking at them like, you know, gleeful almost with this like gleeful smile and, and you know, they come up and obviously they're you know, he knows that they're they're coming to sort of eat crow and, and um he's like, Oh, like you guys want anything? You know, I I, I sorry I didn't wait and he's kind of like sniffing lavender and, and <laughs> looking very smugly upon them as they, you know, try and, you know, um strong arm this deal through and say you know you don't have a choice in this and and Stewie is very resolute um in his um position that it doesn't work for them and um it's you know it's a takedown of Ken which we've seen many times but also um you know a takedown of Logan um and it just reminded me of of the first episode when Logan wouldn't even go into the restaurant to speak to Stewie Stewie and Sandy um you know and here he comes you know crawling um to Greece and, and Stewie sort of has the upper hand and um, you know, it was, it was just a good, um, you know, we, we missed Aaron Moyad a lot yeah, this close, season. He's, but he's close so personal good. friend, Aaron Moyad, <laughs> call us Aryan. Uh, but yeah, um, it's, I thought it was, it's it a was great, great scene. I, I, I think yeah. there's a number of parallels between the season premiere and this finale in this episode, you know, this conversation with Stewie is a big one. As you say, you know, Logan this time has no choice but to come down to Stewie's level and meet him there. In that first episode, um, there's this evocation of, like, a descent into an underworld where Stewie is cast as this figure who's, like, a familiar spirit or the ferryman to Hades. Uh, And in this scene, again, he's this figure who represents basically death. He's, like... You know, you guys are already dead. You're fucked. There's no way you're mm-hmm. getting out of this. And the really great button on that premiere where Ken has that wonderful dead-eyed monologue about mm-hmm. we will send men to kill your pets and fuck your wives and it will never oh be God, over. And that. Sandy just looks him in the <laughs> eye and says, great, let's move ahead with that process. We took to mean in that instance that like, oh yeah, it's on. These guys are just as scary um, as Logan. But now what we see in the scene that that really meant is we don't need to play you on that level because the financial argument is all that we need. Um, you guys are doomed, and we can make this argument that is entirely about financialization and risk assessment, and we don't even have to engage with you, really. And yeah. it's this sense that these guys are just kind of flailing um, you know, completely impotent against uh, a fate that's already been prescribed for them, which has a lot to do with the sense of tragedy that hangs over this show. Yeah. Yeah, they're confronted with the reality that things do exist outside of the family when just, you know, a few minutes earlier, Logan was, you know, so convinced and certain that, you know, nothing else, he's untouchable, nothing else matters. But, you know, Stewie is there to sort of deliver the reality that this is you know, you guys have always made this about money, so why shouldn't we? And, um, you know, there are people who are also influential and, you know, your shareholders care about money. And if we can offer them just a little bit more money for their dollar, um, that's what this is all about. And so reality, um, you know, isn't exactly as, as Logan constructs it um you know the markets exist and and that's the bottom line for stewie here and you know he serves as that sort of stark reminder all right the official position of this podcast is that markets do not exist they're fake but in their world <laughs> um 
yeah. So then the uh, so the follow up here is they all return to the boat and uh, Logan is eating and we have that great oh, scene. Um, <laughs> walks up, sits down next to Logan, gets yeah. his attention, and then takes a big bite of his chicken and chews it up and says, "Thank you, Logan," and walks away. Which is, I guess, Tom's idea of a badass gesture of defiance. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's something. It's something. It also, it's, it's something. It's something. Know, like a, a dead man having his last meal. Um, I but, loved uh, uh, Brian Cox's, uh, what the fuck? <laughs> Just, like, total. Apparently, McFadden so had talked about how in that scene, that was the only time he ever saw Brian Cox break the first time oh he, 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 <laughs> bit, he tried he to eat the, eat the chicken. Yeah, <laughs> he, he started giggling. <laughs> so good. Yeah, so then it sort of uh, veers into this very, like, ominous yet beautiful inaudible scene um, where, you know, Shiv whispers something into Tom's ear and then she well, whispers. before that. Oh, right, before right. That, one other scene between Shiv and Logan where obviously Logan's like, what the, wh- why the fuck did he eat my chicken? <laughs> um, and Shiv has to make this case to Logan or she just has to, or she doesn't even make a case. She just kind of pleads with him as his daughter that, you know, do whatever you need to do, but it can't be Tom. I can't lose him. Right. And um, it's it's another scene where I was just like really taken with the way that Snook acts it. Um, but it's also really interesting to think of as essentially the button on what Shiv's arc for this season has been, which is set up in the first episode as being all about her kind of taking her rightful place as, you know, the heir apparent and was continually frustrated and she had to find these other ways to exercise her power. And in this final episode, the place she ends up is just really interesting, I think, in light of what this arc initially appeared to be. And a lot of it is about, I think, Shiv just realizing what is actually important to her and what she actually wants and what she actually needs. And uh, whether she's happy with that or not, she knows that what she needs is Tom and she needs to not be left alone, which is the thing that she's most afraid of. Right. And in that scene also, um, you know, we learn that Shiv has obviously spoken to Logan about this privately because she says, what about what we talked about? And Logan says, yeah, you know, Ken works. And it's just such a gutting moment, you know, especially thinking back to to safe room and, and Kendall asking Shiv, you know, I, I need you to take care of me. Um, you know, and, and Shiv just willing to, you know, have this uh, sort of private conference with Logan to, to throw him under the bus, um, you know, to save her husband's like a last ditch effort after, you know, completely mugging him off for the whole, you know, 20 episodes. Yeah, well, it's, more like 15. I mean, no, it's, <laughs> more, it's, like it's, ha- more like halfway yeah. through season one when she started being a serious dick. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean, that, that was rough it, it, to to hear that, you know, she obviously had been you know, yeah. throwing out Ken as an idea. But at the same yeah, time, think... she can't quite close on that. She finds herself unable right. when Logan says, you know, you have to make this decision. That's what, you know, people in the CEO role have to mm-hmm. do. And she and, can't do it, yeah. Yeah, this yeah. incredible stillness passes over Snook's face, and she says, just like, I can't choose, you know, I'm not that kind of person. No, uh, just don't he, let it be Tom. Just, just don't Tom. let it be Tom, which is yeah. which is as much, you know... Which uh, is basically... You know, 
executing Ken as anything. Um, but you know, it's it's I, I do think it's significant how she frames that, which is yeah. that like I'm not making this choice. I'm just telling you what's important to me. She does mm-hmm. project responsibility, which I think is quite crucial because that affects how Logan sees her. Yeah, it's very much the uh, you know she's not a killer moment, and like she can't make the tough choices, and it really tells him what he needs right. to what he you know as far as the stuff that he needs to know and the stuff that he values is um, who's going to be a good leader. It, it's it's very uh, you know it's pretty much that's it for you know, for him, I think that the decision is made, but it's, yeah, I think that that moment of the, you know, what about, you know, why not, you know, what we discussed is, um, for some reason, just like hearing it that way and letting us kind of put it together and, and, uh, of that, you know, she has spoken to him about Kendall as an option, uh, as opposed to Tom and, and having us kind of realize that on our own is it's, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a gut punch. Uh, yeah. yeah. It speaks to Instead of us storytelling. That, yeah. Absolutely. The way that they they can drop things like that subtly, um, you know, without having to to, you know, show us the breakdown of each conversation and each scene. Um, yeah, I, I I do really like the um, the image of Ken wearing his fucking ridiculous oversized headphones on the deck of the yacht, which is like a very like little kid image for some reason. Yeah, the show's yeah. really good at making Jeremy Strong look very tiny mm-hmm. when it needs to, and he just looks yeah. like a little boy wearing his headphones, you know, not knowing that the, you know, truck is about to hit him or anything like that. Um, but the scene that follows after Shiv says, you know, hey... Logan wants to see you in this that like little wordless scene with the strings underneath um, sets up this scene, which is, you know, the direction of which by Mark Milan is quite striking the way it uses this kind of roving camera. Um, and of course, we've seen Succession use a roving camera many times with this these sort of busy uh, refocusing and snap zooms. But here, you know, the lens is very shallow and the focus is very much on these two men's faces and the scene is very very carefully scripted uh and um you know the focus is less on you know kind of like the movement of their bodies as it was in season one's finale and it's very much about what is being said Mm -hmm. and what is expressed Uh, i think a lot of the action and meaning of this episode is expressed at the writing level it doesn't do this episode doesn't quite get to the level, I think, of like something like, you know, Boar on the Floor I've talked about as kind of like a sort of pinnacle of the way that show expresses a sort of deeper and more sinister meaning beyond what's literally happening. Here, I think a lot of what's going on is expressed in the writing and in the performance, um, and it doesn't, it doesn't quite get to a level beyond that. Um, but it, it sets up, I think, a lot in terms of these men's, uh, their relationship and how it sets up, you know, what follows, I think, is quite, quite well structured and, you know, really impressive in itself um, for what it alludes to and for what it says. Um, and it's basically this scene where Logan tells Kendall that, yes, you've got to be the one to go because I trust you to carry out this task. Mm-hmm. You know, putting your own head on the spike and you're the one that has been basically set up to do this you're the best candidate for it yeah and i like that he he begins the scene um talking about marcia which 
um, you know, she's not been present. And, and there's a moment um, earlier in the episode when he's on the phone with someone and says, is she coming? And we don't really know who he's talking about, but we can assume it's Marsha. And, um, you know, this scene sort of confirms that he is missing her. Um, and, you know, he says that he, you know, would read um, history books to Marsha. And um, there was something about um, a story about how Inkins would um, sacrifice a child to the sun. And, um, you know, Logan said, you know, it's barbaric. And Marsha, you know, countered with, well, what could you possibly kill that you love so much? It would make the sun rise again. Um, again, you know, sort of using this this language to tell Ken that um, it's okay that he's the spike that, you know, that, I love you more than anything. Um, and, um, yeah, I just, I, 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 this scene, you know, a lot of people speculated that this is the scene where, um, you know, Ken decides to do what he did in the final scene. I'm not sure that that's, you know, necessarily important or particularly, um, relevant, but, um, you know, I I do think that the most striking thing for me in this scene was Ken, you know, really, really wanting Logan to acknowledge his guilt, um, which he has desperately wanted throughout the season to just someone um, to help him, um, you know, reconcile this pain that he's in, um, you know, from the incident with the waiter, Andrew, and, and you know, Logan is so quick to say, no, 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 you know, don't beat yourself up. It's nothing, you know, NRPI, no real person involved. Um, and again, you know, I, I spoke about how earlier Ken and Logan and Logan's talking about how, you know, he didn't have any involvement in any of the, um, you know, cruise stuff and, and um, you know, but but he knew. And, and I think Again, you know, Logan's familiarity with this term NRPI, which is, you know, just so gutting, um, you know, kind of helps. Again, it's it's an accumulation for Ken where he's, um, you know, realizing that Logan, you know, is really as bad, arguably worse um, than any of them, you know, that that he genuinely, you know, thinks that what Lo- what, what, what Kendall did, um, you know is inconsequential. And, um, I think for Ken that he just, he just can't really abide that anymore. And I think that there's, um, you know, a a feeling of inevitability to Ken in the whole episode where I, I don't know, uh, you know, I have no idea how much he's thinking about it or is able to acknowledge it, but I think that there is this sense between Logan and Kendall that it's, probably like that a lot of these things probably aren't going to work that you know a lot of these combinations of people aren't going to be enough and uh that Kendall will probably end up being the person I think that at some level he senses that there's a lot of um there's a lot of cutaways that we get of of Kendall and I just feel like uh the way that Jeremy Strong kind of is in those moments uh Mm -hmm. feels very uh, like he's sort of observing and taking in what's happening and as if he can see the trajectory uh and um you know and i think that that inevitability is something that he on some level accepts because it would be a way for him 
to absolve himself or to, to sort of start to, uh, um, I guess, deal with atone. Atone, exactly. Yeah. I'm looking for sorry, atone um, for what he has done, and I think he's been looking, as you said, for an outlet for that all season. You know, with his, oh god, the scene where he tries to tell his mom oh, yeah. um, <laughs> is so horrible. Um, yeah, know, he's looking for an outlet, and I think that in some way that that there is this acceptance of of being the the sort of the the sacrifice because it would it would allow him to start to um have some sort of way of of reconciling with what's happened and what he's done in his part in things uh, i think that you know everything that happened with the waiter is sort of you know we uh i th- i think that something has sort of switched a little bit in kendall in terms of him seeing uh, you know things from a, a viewpoint outside of you know quite his own um i don't think that it's like you know it's not like drastic i think that's something that's kind of has been accumulating all season um and then in that moment where yeah where logan says you know um nrpi that that connection that's made that that immediate kind of shutting down of like no 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 this is not you you're the best uh you know the real you're it's just like okay my number no, one boy yeah, number one boy, like, no real person, person involved. It's nothing, he says. And it's just sort of, uh, it, yeah, I think that, you know, all of those pieces are then there for him, you know, to, you know, when he starts actually thinking about this stuff, who really right. cares? But, like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. But all the pieces are there. All the pieces are there. There are certain things said at certain moments that I think click in a way that register for him that wake him up a bit, uh, you know, and... um and just the the trajectory of that of that scene, and yeah, the camera is so close to their faces. It is like, especially Jeremy Strong, we are like right there, and um, so it's a very um, yeah. It's just a it's a, the trajectory of that scene and the way yeah the way that it is so carefully sort of structured and, and plotted out is just so and great. written too. I mean, it's just the and, just the parallels, the way that you know he he Kendall then asked just out of interest, did you ever think I could yeah. do it? And Logan's like, oh, what the top job? And then he says, you know, the infamous line, maybe, you know, but you're not a killer. Um, yeah. <laughs> which this whole time Ken is thinking to himself, I am a killer and I need, um, yeah, <laughs> I need release exactly. from it. And Logan oh. is trying to to reassure him and tell him there's something about you that is killer-like. Um, but I also thought it was interesting that he said, you know, but nowadays maybe you don't need to be, you know, I don't know. Which I think was a, a really excellent way to speak to, um, you know, this larger idea that's been present throughout the entire show, but especially this season. Um, we talked about a little bit before the idea of changing times, you know, PC culture, you know, all the, all the corporate feminism that was used in the last few episodes to try and um, tamp down scandals, the idea of dinosaur culling. And, and I recently watched the pilot, actually, and um, Lawrence had a great line to uh, Ken at the end of that episode where he says, you're a bunch of bloated dinosaurs who didn't see the monkeys swinging by. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, so um, I don't know, that, that line, you're not a killer, um, I think on both levels um, was, um, you know, sort of uh, maybe the the nail in the coffin for Ken, you know, not to be too on the nose about it. <laughs> Should we bring in the poem again, the Berryman poem? Yeah. Um, you know, there's the, uh, I, I just, I'm really interested in like the significance that this holds for 
Jesse Armstrong, who, you know, we, I read the script for Nobody's Ever Missing, the season one finale, which is also named for a line in the uh, Dream Song 29 by John Berryman, as is this episode, This Is Not For Tears. Uh, and in the script for that episode, when um, Kendall wakes up the morning after the wedding and turns on the radio, in the episode there's uh, some kind of radio play on. Um, but in the script, it's that poem being recited. Oh, wow. And the the opening lines are, There sat down once a thing on Henry's heart, so heavy if he had a hundred years and more, and weeping sleepless in all them time, Henry could not make good. And that thing, that idea of something that sits down heavy on your heart is just something that, you know, is, is part of this whole season and part of Ken's character. Um, something that he will never be without if he had a thousand years, he could not make good. This idea that, you know, that kind of redemption or atonement is something that just lies outside of his reach. And, you know, we can talk about whether in this scene, you know, at the kind of most prosaic level, I think what this scene is written to get across is that uh, really crucially that line about the NRPI where Ken makes the connection that this language of dehumanization starts with his father and that his father was probably much closer to this cover up than he admits or that anyone will admit. But I think, you know, even, you know, more crucial than that is, um, just this idea that, uh, um, that he and his father occupy different realities that his father is not willing to countenance the idea that he could be guilty of something. Even as he knows it weighs on his son, he is not willing to countenance the idea that they could be guilty of a crime committed against another person. For them, it is not real. The other person is not real. And this sort of irreconcilable gulf between him and his father, I think, is as crucial as anything to what follows. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said, Brendan. So there's a sort of a brief interlude where the family is notified that Ken is going to take a helicopter and do a press conference where he gives himself up. There's a little bit of table setting here for the next season, I guess, where we say the that like, Frank, right, Frank is going to take charge of uh, the cruises cleanup. So Frank will be in charge mm-hmm. of cruises. Roman is going to move into the full COO position, having proven his worth. I thought CEO. And, and now we'll be, he's COO. Yeah. I thought he named him as, as chief executive op- officer. I think it's just COO. Oh, okay. Logan, Logan's still there. Um, but, you know, that kind of puts him, you know, at the right hand, right? He's now probably more of an obvious successor than Shiv is. Right. Um, Shiv is out. Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's, that, that, there's that great cut to, to her face where it's, yeah. she's kind of just, she's, you know, she's gotten nowhere the whole season. She's left with, uh, you know, kind of where she started. Right. Oh, actually in a worse position. Just that. that right. Yeah, it's a great it's a great reaction shot from her. In that first scene in the premiere where she's in the room with Logan and she travels the circumscribed path where she circles her seat and she circles him, but she never gets any closer to where he's sitting. Um yeah. is kind of, you know, the you know, the the path that she crosses in the whole season. Yeah, and there's that, that tender moment um where Roman has like a genuine look of concern on his face regarding Ken being the sacrifice and Ken just sort of 
looks at him reassuringly and, you know, says, Rome, it's okay. Um, again, another moment where people probably speculated that, you know, maybe there was something more nefarious going on that everybody, that people knew about. But, um, you know, I think we can trust Succession enough at this point to take it at face value. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, yes. not, they're, not, they're not keeping secrets from us on oh. this show. You know, they're not keeping anything from us that would, um, you know, that would completely change you know the trajectory of of the story so um so yeah so i mean yeah i mean let's just get to what what happens there's not really much to say um ken gets on a helicopter greg is there greg expresses sympathy for what ken is going through for what his father's doing to him that's as much as we get between them uh, and then Ken is back in New York. He's back at Waystar. He's there to do a press conference. They're watching on TV on the yacht. Ken appears to be about to give himself up, but there's something wrong. He's saying a bit too much about the situation. He's saying a bit too much about the angles. He's saying, you know, there's a sense that I would be a suitable figure to absorb, you know, all of this. And he really bites on that syllable as he looks into the camera and says, but, and then, you know, plunges the dagger into his father's heart and, so, and blames Logan for the cover up for everything says that he has documents with Logan's signature that will implicate him personally in the cover up. The cut is to Greg implying that as Ken learned in the first season finale, Greg is still in possession of documents uh, that implicate Logan and the two of them will work together to make those public and to secure his downfall. And then as Ken leaves the press conference and this sort of, you know, kind of uproar, you know, it's, it's like the end of Iron Man where he like says he's Iron Man and everybody like jumps up and goes, Oh, Mr. Stark. <laughs> oh my God. Um, <laughs> I, I thought of that too. And I, I hate that I thought, I hate that funny, I thought of it, but I did. It's a very cliche moment, honestly. <laughs> uh, but as he walks out, the final cut is to, uh, the final shot is of Logan's face as a tiny smile curls his lips and we go to the credits. Um, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredibly cathartic, exhilarating mm-hmm. twist that this show could take. It's very satisfying. I think as I've thought about it more, the sort of ambiguity of this scene has set in more for me. You know, it's in the immediate aftermath of it. I was like, you know, that was so satisfying. I'm, I'm not even sure that I need to see season three right away. I would be happy to wait a couple of months even. Um, but it's that 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 twist of uh, Logan's lips at the very end there is obviously the thing that set off this fan theory we've been alluding to that somehow there was some big conspiracy that Logan masterminded it all. Um, but it also cements for me, I think, some things that are very sad and tragic and tie into this series is overall kind of tragic thrust and this idea of a circle of abuse and trauma and tragedy that is unending even as it seems to be disrupted here um but uh what did you two think of of this ending um i can i just i just want to point out one thing that i i didn't know if um anyone had like a an opinion on this but they're thinking about kind of greg's position at the end of the episode where we sort of see that he sided with kendall and that um you know, he's clearly sharing the documents with him. It got me thinking about the other two moments with him about the rosé and about him being really unimpressed with the yacht. 
Um, or like, which is like weird, but like, there's something about his indifference to luxury in this episode that, uh, I almost find like thinking about kind of where he's, I don't really ever, I don't spend that much time thinking about where Greg's at because it's Greg, but like, there is something about a, a possible disillusionment of some kind, uh, sort of, you know, having to testify and being part of all of this and kind of, you know, this idea of, is he rethinking where he wants to? to be and then thinking about where he kind of aligns himself at the end and, and thinking about also the journey that kind of him and Ken have gone on with their kind of like sort of dynamic um, overtaking kind of um, his dynamic with Tom, I think is um, was an interesting thing. I didn't know if it was like a thing just, just before we get into like the meat of it. I'll yeah, no, I, I mean, I think, that. yeah, I, I agree that I don't think too much about what's going on with Greg internally. <laughs> <Yeah>. but... <laughs> But, no, no, I really don't. This is like probably the I know, first time I know, I've I know. ever thought but, of it. But you're right, but you're right, because Greg did have to make a decision there. Um, you know, Team Kendall or Team Waystar. And I think, yeah, I think they've slowly been teasing out sort of a a fondness between Ken and Greg, um, particularly since the finale of season one, you know, you little Machiavellian mm. fuck. I like yeah. it. Um, you know, Ken buying the apartment for Greg, kind of, you know, looking out for him a little bit in a way. Yeah, and I, and I do wonder what, you know, Greg's calculus was. Um, you know, I'm not going to spend a ton of time speculating on how <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> that unfolded and, and how the two of them sort of came to that conclusion. But it is interesting to think about how, how Greg, um, yeah, he, he sort of has come into his own, um, you know, he's still kind of goofy, but he's not as... Um, you know, uh, sort of uh, doe-eyed and, and, and naive as he was, um, you know, throughout, you know, the course of season one. And, um, yeah, so, you know, I think it was a bold move for him as well to sort of, you know, offer himself up in a way because, <laughs> you know, that the having those documents um, really, you know, was was something that we didn't really know, like, what, what the end game there was but um you know i think it, it was so satisfying oh, that so the camera satisfying. panned to him holding oh yeah older. so good and i don't know it makes me think like people focusing so much on the idea of twists and masterminding i, I understand the impulse but succession is all about like these small moments um yeah. that come back and so you know the tug of like greg's envelope during that presser um, it was so powerful and, and oh, yeah. it didn't require any sort of, you know, um, you know, it, it, I think maybe it, it primed people to think that there was going to be some other um, major twist or that there's something to speculate on. But again, like, I think that these are the moments that if you love succession, um, that you derive joy and excitement from, you know, the same kind of joy or excitement you might get from a a plot heavy or high concept, very twisty type show, you know, in succession, we are electrified by these small moments um, because of how deep the arcs are built and how long they are and, and how, you know, familiar uh, succession is with its characters and, and that it's really a show about these personalities and these characters. And it's, it's not really so much a show about plot. And I know that maybe, you know, some people, you know, don't want to accept that. And, but, you know, the show is first and foremost, um, you know, about people and secondary is what's going on around them. And I think the fact that we don't learn everything 
up front affords the show this really great opportunity to drop us these wonderful little Easter eggs and reminders of the past and, you know, but not in a way that it, you know, diverts from the show's storytelling or, or, you know, sets us off course. It all makes sense in retrospect. Yeah. And it's, it's a really emotional final scene. Like the both times that I've watched it, I've like <laughs> just gotten really like, it's, it's okay. You can just, say you teared up. We, <laughs> oh, I, I, I straight up cried both times. Like it is powerful. Like it is yeah. so cathartic. I mean, you really feel like a proud parent with Kendall, and totally. there's this sort of sense of, um, it kind of reminded me at the end of the Truman Show in a weird way, where you're kind yeah. of like waiting for, for, for this character to break out mm. of the reality that he, yeah. the, the very narrow, insular reality that he's become part of to go out into the world and sort of, you know, face, the, face that and to be strong enough to uh, to, to push again you know and break through what he knows is is sort of the false edges and um and and it's a very similar emotional reaction i have at the end of that film as i did at the end of this where it is that very overwhelming sort of emotional catharsis of seeing someone get up the nerve to kind of break through their own reality and go into sort of unknown horizon even though they don't know what that is but because they know it's what they have to do so you know just seeing all that from um from Kendall after what has been right. a really rough, rough season, like emotionally just watching him in every episode has taken its toll as a viewer. Um, you know, it's he's, tough to He's watch. going through it. And he is going through it and we are going through it with him. And uh, so to get to that end point with him and to just be left on that note is, it, it was, a, it's just so satisfying and, and so overwhelming. And um, yeah, it's, it's, ugh, it's so good. Yeah, I mean, we've been alluding to this fan theory that's emerged that the little smile on Logan's face at the end indicates that, you know, he wanted Kendall to do this. He wanted Kendall to kill him, and that they planned this together, that there was some kind of master plan that Logan had in place. And I, I made that uh, comparison to Breaking Bad kind of uh, spur of the moment at the beginning of the episode. Um, but it's it's interesting that that uh, the fan theories for that uh, show also revolved around a character oh, yeah. masterminding everything mm-hmm. secretly, um, you know. Whereas the show was actually quite intentional. Whenever it wanted you to know that Walt was masterminding something, there was the pan over in the penultimate episode of season four to the Lily of the Valley, foreshadowing yeah. that he was behind the poisoning of the child that drove the uh, sort of end game of that season. And similarly here, um, there's a really good piece that Gabby and I have talked about um, by Emily Vanderwerf and Vox, who kind of outlines this theory and why it doesn't make sense, kind of debunks Mm -hmm. it. And it's a really good piece because it outlines, you know, the kind of most effective argument you can make against sort of this kind of theorizing and speculation, which is, you know, the show just doesn't work that way. Um, It just, it, it, it flies in the face of the formal and visual logic that the show has set up to say that, you know, something happened off screen that we're not aware of that we're meant to sort of speculate of all the information that we need is given to us in the editing and the scenes and the writing um, and, and in the, and in the framing. Uh, So to say that, you know, some sort of great bit of scheming or conspiracy that we're meant to infer is just totally unseen by the audience um, hilariously, as I saw on the Succession subreddit, subreddit, someone theorized that the uh, episode image on HBO for this, which is of the four siblings sitting on the yacht at night 
in what is either a promotional still or a deleted scene, but that was the scene that where they conspired to kill Logan that was oh, for some reason deleted. No, um, no, no. Just no. flies in the face of any sort of, you know, rational oh. understanding of how these shows are put together and what a sort of tightly controlled operation succession in particular is. Um, and yeah, so basically, you know, there's there's there isn't any need to speculate, and I I I think that that final shot set a lot of people's imaginations racing, um, who are not necessarily used to trying to interpret narrative art or don't necessarily have the toolbox for it because a lot of people don't. Um, you know, a lot of stuff is not made with this kind of intention and people don't develop the kind of toolbox for interpreting this kind of thing. But also it's this, it's a shot that is meant to leave you with a feeling of, I think, ambivalent meaning and import. And it's supposed to kind of set your brain afire, uh, but not quite to this room to 237 craze of trying to spin out what <laughs> conspiracies are afoot. Yeah. I mean, to me, the, you know, the, to me, the moment is just him feeling as a father first. I mean, we know what he holds to be and, you know, what, what's important to him, what he wants can to be, but doesn't see him as. And, you know, I just, to me, I just saw it as um, that he's, you know, the, the other stuff, the other emotions will come late, you know, probably in a few minutes or a few seconds after that. But in that moment, that's, that's how he's seeing it first. And I found that, you know, um, kind of emotional too in its own way it in its own kind of weird <laughs> uh distorted way that logan sort of uh sees his kids um you know it's such a you know i feel and i feel like we're feeling the same thing but for towards him but for different reasons you know right. for different reasons like we're we're proud of him for sort of finding a, a you know a strength and a, and a humanity and looking outside of himself and you know logan's sort of feeling proud of him because he sees him as a killer now. And um, it's, you know, sort of him ascending to kind of his uh, full potential that he uh, never thought that, you know, he could uh, have. So it, it, and all of that plays into what, again, like what, what you were saying about um, just all this very careful character work, all of this very um, specific intention that's used uh, and, and, and these very careful arcs that have been put into place and what, and, and those moments are, um, really an accumulation of, of what we know about about these two and about their dynamic and about their journeys. Uh, so to uh, kind of reduce it, you know, to um, sort of basic, like, you know, 40 chess plot mechanics that are, uh, it's, um, you know, I, I do understand the impulse because I of, you know, sort of the material that's presented to a lot of people and how people like to interpret things, but it's, um, it, it really reduces all the character work that that the show's built off of and and it also kind of makes you know um it, it sort of i don't know it erases like the choices being made uh, to me it just does it completely rewrites the show in like such a strange you know yeah way that doesn't make like any sense at no. all <laughs> like on any level like it's just so weird but um but yeah, the reason that, that that stuff works so well is is because of that kind of ambivalence and that room for everyone to kind of take from it what they can. But to me, it, all of that is is from a character point of view and from a character level and the and the the, the building of these kind of um, decisions and 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 um, sort of emotional arcs, and not because of uh, you know these sort of 
very uh, complex plot mechanics because to me part of this show is uh, what um, I don't know that that a lot of the characters really aren't as smart as they initially seem to be and that the right. thing that makes people the characters on this show smart is because there are people all around them working towards these big moves that they're trying to make for themselves and and really like the carolinas or you know and then the jerry's and the franks and the carls and and all these people um kind of trying to you know just going frantic trying to make things happen um and that we kind of see that at the core a lot of these characters really um you know they 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 talk the talk but they don't really have the skill sets or experience uh like the the shivs like with what holly hunter says about um about her about how she's like not as smart as she seems and just kind of decide and you know obviously roman um doesn't know what the hell he's doing half you know most of the time but like uh just the idea that and logan too i mean we see logan throughout the season he's and i think throughout the show that he's there are certain types of instincts that he just he doesn't really know how to work his way around and it's really because of all the people around them that he's able to kind of maneuver through a lot of things and so this idea of like this mastermind thing it really goes against what i think a lot of the show kind of shows which is that kind of um certain that these these people are not those people that we would uh that they're kind of that right. the, those theories sort of uh interpret them as being yeah, I mean, there's this great quote that Jesse Armstrong um, that I cited in our pilot episode um, from Jesse Armstrong saying that, you know, part of the impetus of succession and, and creating the show was that um, we lend too much credence in the, to the way that powerful people choose to portray themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, succession sort of turns that on its head. And, and I think su- what succession is doing is really showing us um, a very, very stark reality um of and portrayal i mean almost a a scathing portrayal of how things Mm. actually are um whereas inside the show these people are convinced that they know how things are and they're not and the idea that logan was maybe was masterminding something i mean that's just lending way too much um credence to to logan's abilities i mean he's been struggling with his health i mean we know throughout this season he's not been in command like he has been in the past Yes, Logan is a brute and he is violent and, um, you know, some people might read that as, you know, being extremely cunning. But, you know, if Succession wanted us to know that Logan was plotting something and masterminding something, they would tell us. Like, you know, something that um, Emily said in that Fox article is, you know, this idea that, you know, your favorite show is keeping something from you. You need to figure out its mm-hmm. secrets. It's now basically applied to every show on television. And you know, she gives some examples as to why, you know, logistically the twist just doesn't really make any sense. But you know, I think the heart of it and and why the twist idea doesn't track is um, really the idea that succession it doesn't exist to make us confused. That's not what its project <laughs> is. And yeah. it was first particularly striking to us. Um, in Austerlitz, you know, an episode about childhood trauma that, you know, this is strictly A to B linear storytelling. Um, you know, there's no flashbacks or devices to support, you know, any sort of, uh, of, of development. Um, you know, the plots in succession are unearthed one scene at a time, you know, alongside these very patiently and artfully um, curated 
character arcs and and the key is that each episode is self-contained for the most part and at any moment one of several subplots can you know explode and create a sort of domino effect that involves all the characters because the nexus of succession is that this is a closed loop system all of these people are trapped (laughs) they're linked they're inextricably stuck together um you know so yeah i mean you know, yeah, again, yeah, I, I understand why people, you know, especially in in the age of 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 streaming and whatnot, um, you know, want to focus on plot. But um, you know, I, I do think that is a reduction of Succession's, um, you know, beauty and and what what makes it so so deeply satisfying. Yeah, which is that it's not that thing. Exactly. Yeah, so to talk a little bit about that closed-loop system and (laughs) what I took away (laughs) from the finale and what I've been thinking about since. Actually, I just want to make one brief observation about that final scene, which is, I think, uh, Katie, you mentioned Carolina, and I think one of the really memorable bits of this episode for me is the way that as Ken is exiting the press conference, there's a sudden cut to Carolina on the phone and her face just twists into this snarl of anger. Fuck, uh, fuck, in a fuck, way that yeah. we've really not seen before, um, and uh, it's 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 quite striking because, like, on one level, it really makes sense because it's funny because once again, Carolina's having to clean up Ken's mess as she did all the way back <laughs> in Lifeboats, where she had to, uh, you know, uh, 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 nice talk his disaster. She also had to help metaphor. Ken get drugs uh, in this season yeah. too. Oh yeah, yes, yes, she is oh, always Carolina. cleaning up after this kid, and yeah. she has to do it again. Um, yeah, the way that her uh, face suddenly slips into this just mask of hatred is, I think, something that was just quite vivid and striking in the middle of that scene but yeah i mean what this final scene represents you know it it seems to be something the reason it's so satisfying is at first because it appears to break this cycle right um you know game of thrones in its final season talked a lot about the idea of you know breaking the wheel and you know succession is at least indirectly about that the the idea of this wheel of the closed loop system the system of capital and power that appears to be unending and unbreakable and this pattern of behavior of pain and abuse and humiliation that these people are trapped in that they can't get out of and so this scene appears to represent ken striking a blow against that he strikes the first meaningful blow against his father and really makes it hurt and there's a sense that okay if if logan can be taken out then maybe you know this cycle can be broken and there is hope of escape but there's a couple of things that i've been thinking about to give me pause one is just that the reason logan smiles there is not just that he's proud that ken is a killer it's that on some level Ken doing this is a gesture of love and respect to his father because he says, I want to be the man that you want me to be. I want to be the killer you want me to be. Um, And there's a mutual recognition and respect there that even as there's a kind of, you know, game on moment where you can bet that the next time these two meet, you know, they will uh, show each other no mercy uh, that uh, Ken has basically acknowledged that what his father wants for him is the same thing that he wants for himself, which is kind of sad. And there's also this, you know, just what we talked about in that last confrontation scene between Ken and Logan, the idea that this thing that sits down heavy on Ken's heart 
is something that he finally has a chance to atone for. He's got a door to go through where he's not going to confess to his real crime, but he can go through this public ordeal. He can possibly go to prison. He can atone in some way for the guilt that weighs on him so heavily, for the death that hangs over his head all the time. And there's a possibility that in doing that, he can escape his father's influence. And so the idea that instead of doing that, Ken is going to, again, sort of take up in a sort of uh, uh, sequel to season one, this battle with his father. You know, in episode eight in Prague at the bachelor party was another episode where Stewie is there as this dark demonic spirit in this underworld where Ken has a choice to make in the crucible there. Ken realizes that he can't make a life for himself outside his family and he has to return to the family business. Well, Stewie is here again and Ken has a choice to make. Is he going to, you know, make a choice to get out, to get out of this loop or, and, you know, do some real work on himself and confront his pain and his guilt? Or is he going to sort of just take up the same battle against his father that's defined him his own life? And that's what's cruel in Logan's smile is it's the right. smile of mm. this guy, this abusive father who has uh, been shoving and poking and prodding Ken his whole life. And he's finally gotten the kid to snap. And that's that cruel little hint of glee in that smile and that he's finally gotten this kid to break and acknowledge that all he wants to do his whole life is fight with his dad. And the myth that I think of, you know, we talk about Oedipus this whole season, but the myth I think of is Orpheus who was walking out of the underworld and all he had to do was not look behind him at his beloved and he could walk out with her. But, you know, like Orpheus, Ken looks back and he's swallowed up again. And it's, it's so there's as much as that catharsis is real. Right. And it's also just very, you know, very devastating and sad. Yeah. Yeah. And true to succession's form and its central tension, you know, it, it would it wouldn't make sense for, for Logan to, to not be, you know, sort of proud and um, excited in that moment because, um, you know, again, Ken is uh, just repeating the cycle in doing this. Um, and, you know, there's going to be, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're set up for what's going to be an extremely um, exciting season. And, and we know that we'll probably just get, you know, the show will probably pick up where it left off and um, that's how it, how it operates. But, mm. but yeah, you know, the, despite the catharsis, um, we're reminded from that smile that, um, you know, this is you know, going to be never ending yeah. between and the there, two of them. And there's that moment where um, just that little moment where he kind of, you know, when Roman comes in the room and, uh, Logan kind of holds his finger to his lips. It's mm-hmm. like, he is not going to miss a moment. He's loving this. it. Yeah. <laughs> he is like, it's so, like, this is like. It's the Kendall he, show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's the Kendall show. And he is like, he's got to catch all of it. And it's just, there's something uh, in his stillness there. It's just, um, yeah, everything you said, it's just, and all, all of this stuff, uh, again, is just, is so character based. And so uh, it has everything to do with 
everything that the show has right. um, built into these just such complex people um, and characters. And how, and how well they know them. And how Exactly, and how well they know them. It, yeah. it's just, and you can just keep digging and, and, and thinking about it and tracking it, and there's so much richness there. And I think that's also what lends succession to rewatches so well, yes. is that it's, it's so rich. There is so much stuff to um, continue to kind of dig into and sit with, and, you know, um, it's... I've, I've like found that my rewatch of season, you know, one, um, which is the first rewatch of the show that I've done is, um, I'm getting so many different things out of it this time. And I know that that would, yeah. be, that would be the same thing. And it's like, you know, I totally not, encourage people to rewatch. I mean, oh, it's you, so you pick up so much more I mean, it's, it's just, it's delightful. It really yeah. is. I think I've seen season one, like six times all the oh. way through. Yeah, um, me too. To maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe more. It's oh, kind, of, kind, of, kind of embarrassed with how much I've rewatched the show, but no. it really, like, it has such rewatch value. It's what I, I tell people who've seen it like once through, and they're like, "Yeah, it was good." I'm like, "Just please, like, watch it again, like, you know, because, um, yeah." And and I think so much of the show's, um, um, you know, brilliance is in the way that it is building up, um these subplots and these characters and, and there are things that you might forget like you might forget that that Greg told Kendall at the end of season one that he uh, you know kept some of the documents um, and, and there's lots of thing, little things like that yeah. um, that that you know allow us to sort of go deeper um, as viewers well we are at two hours <laughs> Of recording. <laughs> is this the I record? This, the, uh, I don't know. I think Austerlitz was pretty long, but yeah, this is this has got to be close. Yes, yeah, this is one um, or two. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they gave um, us a lot to work that. with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jesus, stop making such good TV. We'll make sure. I know. <laughs> don't actually do that. <laughs> I know. Um, uh, I don't know if we have closing thoughts or if we even have time for closing thoughts. We know we're going to be recording more. Um, Kate wasn't able to join us today, but um, we will record something um, with the three of us soon, um, talking about the season as a whole and revisiting some of our favorite moments. Um, yeah, and we, we won't be closing up shop entirely um, until next year. You know, we'll, we'll do some, some special episodes and some themed episodes. And if you guys have any ideas of, of things you'd want us to talk about, um, you know, shoot us a message on, on Twitter, or email us, whatever. Um, yeah, because I don't think I'm going to be able to go a whole 10 months without talking about success. <laughs> oh, no. oh, my God. <laughs> and, and I'm going to drive everybody in my life crazy if um, <laughs> I don't have the Roy Cast as an outlet. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, folks, we got open DMs. Not enough people are taking advantage of those. <laughs> I'm disappointed at how little harassment we're receiving. <laughs> <laughs> and we're very sorry for the wait on this episode, but you know, hopefully it was worth it. I'm not sorry. It was worth it. <laughs> yeah. It was it was totally worth it. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. This was oh, so good. Thank yeah. you so much. Um like clearly as as all of us are, I'm in like a succession withdrawal of sorts. So between like rewatching it with my boyfriend and kind of um getting this opportunity to sort of really dig into it and talk about it has been like a really nice cap to um this season and just me trying to prep myself for not having new episodes of the show for like a year. <laughs> so yeah. thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you. Yeah. It was a wonderful discussion. All right, folks. Uh, Katie, do you have anything you want to plug real quick? 
Um, we can find you on Twitter at Katie Stebbins. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, you can check out my Etsy page. I make like zines about uh, years in film and. You know, I tweet about that, uh, the project that I do, um, watching a bunch of films from particular years. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much it right now. But Yeah, if you're not already following Katie on Twitter, she is definitely one of my most recommended follows. One oh, of my favorite people you. to read about film. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> um, all right. Well, until we do this again, <laughs> whatever that <laughs> is, um, come find us online. We're the Roy cast. Thank you so much, everyone, for following us throughout this season it has been a delight getting to chat with everybody online and seeing everybody um find our show um it's it's been a lot of fun from the bottom of our heart thank you um and uh yeah until next time uh, we'll be around bye-bye it's not what you thought when you first began Stand it though, but I know it's not.